into God's Word at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I was thinking of of how best to, to work our way into this passage. And, um, well, I'll, I'll just head into it this way. Uh, love makes you do strange things. Um, you know, perhaps from your own story, your life story and history, there are things that you look back on and wonder, that, boy, that was goofy. Uh, but th- when, when you were young and in love, you know, did you ever goof off in silly ways and look back on it and think, oh, goodness, young love or whatever that some wives may say uh, he's never quit um but when tracy and i uh were were dating she and i would play this sort of game although i suppose it was one-sided uh it was more more or less just me a game of sorts um where we would be walking together and i would just i would just drop out uh so we'd be walking through uh the door at the mall and i would open the door for her you know to be a gentleman and everything and she would walk through the door, and I'd just drop the door and stay on the other side and see how long it was before she noticed I wasn't with her. Uh, we would do that walking around displays at the store, um, uh, you know, past structural, like the, 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 what are those things called that hold buildings up? Thank you. Columns. Uh, rotating doors, of course, were a bit more tricky, but this was a thing that I did uh, fairly constant for the first couple years uh, until she caught on and, and made sure that I walked through first. Um, but I thought it was pretty clever at the time, uh, and the goal was, of course, to see how far she would go without me. Um, I thought it was great fun. But as Christians, in our, in our walk with the Lord, we often find ourselves suddenly feeling that we are alone, you know, similar to Tracy, and then feeling like, he did it again, didn't he? You know, and go look for me. Um, but we often find ourselves feeling suddenly alone, and that God has somehow dropped out of the picture and is nowhere to be found. However, when we examine our lives a little closer, we often find that we are the ones who have sauntered away, that we are the ones who have found some shiny thing that's distracted us, that we are the ones who have quit walking with him or walking in him. So tonight we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Let's read it together now. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted And built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. These two verses are at the heart of the book of Colossians. This is why Paul wrote the book. This is the response that he wanted from his reader. And the Colossian church was was toying uh, with different types of false teaching. It looked good, it sounded interesting, and they were beginning to lend an ear to it. They were in jeopardy of walking away from the faith and from all that they had been taught and believed, uh, that they had believed in when the gospel was first preached to them. And while Paul is nowhere near as alarmed with Colossians, the the church at Colossae, as he was perhaps with Galatians, uh, Paul encourages them in this book to stand fast in the faith, not to walk away, but to walk in him, to live their lives in him. And so we too need to read this book and pay attention to it, that we would walk in him and that we would live our lives in him. So as we read the book of Colossians, we ask ourselves, how do I avoid walking away from where I ought to be? And Paul's response is here, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And many of you here tonight, I know, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. 
You've received not just teaching about him, but him as a person, him and who he is and what he can do and what he has done for you and for your soul. And those who have received Jesus as Lord recognize the fact that he is the Lord. He's not a divine hero. He's not a good luck charm. He's not a fallback or a plan B. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of my life. At least that's our goal. (laughs) And what is more, being in Christ transforms the way that a Christian lives. So we look here at verse 7 is where we're going to focus for the the majority uh, of the time here tonight. And we see that, that we who have received Christ by faith are given four different aspects of how you walk in him and not away from him. And Paul gives us directions to avoid spiritual sand traps uh, that would weaken our allegiance to Christ. So how do we walk in him? The first thing he tells us is that you need to be rooted in him. Now, admittedly, he mixes metaphors here, which any good grammarian or English teacher would say you don't mix metaphors. But it's inspired, so they can, they can do this. It's rooted and built up in him. The idea of rooted, of course, gives us the idea of plants. Uh, and uh, the being built up, of course, brings to mind the idea of construction. But looking first at what it means to be rooted in him. That what you have received in Jesus has effectively rooted you in the faith. It's a, by the tense of it that we lose somewhat in translation, Uh, into English, is something that's been completed in the past and that has lasting results in the future. Uh, I think of this sort of like the day I got married. I was married on June 4th of 2005, and that happened. It was an event in the past, but it still has lasting repercussions for me today in the present. And our salvation is the same. We have been rooted in Him in the past and it's still playing out today. Salvation is certainly a point-in-time event, but it isn't over and done with. It has lasting results in the present and clear into the future. But there was a problem in the Colossian church. Some unnamed outside influence was teaching something new, false things about the gospel. And we can infer what the false teachings were by Paul's defenses throughout the book, sort of like reverse engineering. Someone decided that salvation in Jesus alone by faith alone was not enough that true spiritual fulfillment requires more than Christ. And the truth that um, preached by Paul was apparently seen as simplistic and naive, that there had to be more. So they added things in, spiritism, speculation about angels, and the notion that self-denial achieves greater spirituality. And these were some of the issues that Paul addresses in this book. And really not much has changed in a couple of millennia, has it? Those who simply take God at his word are still viewed as simplistic and naive, and that great spiritual truths just have to be more complicated than that, right? Now, there has to be more to it. But Paul contends that since you have been rooted in Christ, you don't need more than you got at salvation. And he develops that in the verses that follow here. So let's quickly sort of survey um, the next several verses. Verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Empty, hollow religion. But he compares that or contrasts that with the next verse of Jesus Christ, who is full, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And um, if you were to, to, to look at the book of Colossians, there's a lot of things that are mentioned, nouns and, and whatnot, uh, in, in the first chapter that he brings out in the second. In the first chapter, it's a prayer, and the second is where he's really beginning to address his issues. But if you, if you look here at... Uh, 
chapter 1, verse 19. I'm going to have you flipping back and forth a little bit just to warn you. Where it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And he brings it right up again, contrasting it with verse 8. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Where we are mere image bearers of God, which of course is valuable enough because that's what makes us different from all the rest of creation. Christ, even more so, is all of God. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And religion does not continue what faith started. And Paul is pointing out here, you don't need more than you got at salvation. Adding religion and religiosity to it is empty and hollow. You've been rooted in Christ, so walk in him. In verse 10, he continues with more in hymns. And I I made that phrase up. Um, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all rule and authority. Um, If we were to compare this to, to 2 Timothy 1, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1.3, if you're taking notes. I won't send you to the wrong spot. It says this, According as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. And this is another key truth, that we are complete in him. And in, in 2 Peter, this phrase that he has given us everything that pertains to life and to godliness is, is the idea of preparing yourself for a long journey. And if you put yourself back a couple thousand years, as they had to prepare for journeys, they had to make sure that they had everything that they needed because there were no helicopters that could come in to bring them supplies. They needed food. They needed tackle. They needed extra ropes in case they got into a storm to undergird the boat. They had to certainly make sure there was enough food and, and whatever other water and other supplies that they would need. And... The point is this, that God has fully equipped you. You have the complete package in Christ. From the day that you were rooted in him, you received everything that you need for life and for godliness. That he has given everything that you need to take this journey of walking in him. So when you don't feel like you're enough, that you're not good enough for whatever task, you're not smart enough, not talented enough, not good looking enough? I don't know. I probably shouldn't go there. But anyway, you must remember that you are spiritually complete. You don't need anything but Jesus, and you are fully equipped. All the spiritual resources you need for your entire life journey are already on board with you. And the Colossians didn't need to add to salvation to make it a better experience, and neither do you. He continues on with more in hymns. If you look at verse 12, that we are buried with him, which is, of course, the picture of baptism that we had last week, as we had uh, last Sunday night, a few baptisms. Continuing on in verse 12, you are risen with him. And then in verse 13, you are quickened or made alive in him. And the idea is this, that you don't need Christ plus anything. Christ is enough to make us spiritually alive and to seal heaven as our future home. So while the Colossian church was flirting with the idea that certain practices must be added on in order to true, you know, reach uh, true spiritual fulfillment, there's got to be something more. Paul's math seems to say that addition is actually, in fact, subtraction. You can't add anything to Christ without subtracting from his exclusive place in creation and in salvation. And this is emblazoned all over chapter 1 and 2. You can see it all over the place, um, that To add anything to Christ is, in effect, to take away from who he is and what he has done. 
As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You've got the complete spiritual life package at your disposal. You've been rooted in Christ. And while you were rooted in Christ sometime in the past and don't require anything outside of Christ for true spiritual fulfillment, I think we'd all agree that we are uh, projects still in process, or as my mother used to refer to us as pieces of work. But we, we've been rooted in him, but it says we've also, we are being built up in him. And the idea of being built up, of course, implies that, that we didn't start out that way. We didn't start out completed in any way, uh, or that to stay that way, we need some sort of attention. See, most houses are not prefabricated, you know, where they're assembled uh, off-site, and they put the wide load sign on it and drive it down the road and drop it in some place, put a few screws in to hold the thing together, and it's set to go. Um, it takes time, it takes resources, and a lot of patience to construct a home. But once built, a building requires maintenance and attention. Dishwashers rust out, freezers ice over, roofs leak, foundations erode. Um, within the last four months, um, just about every mechanical something or other in my house has a need to be addressed or replaced. Uh, so we have all new appliances and things like that. Uh, because the house is 12 years old, everything in it was 12 years old, and things begin to break down. Uh, it needs maintenance. And so we too need to be built up, but we also need to be uh, maintained, require constant spiritual attention. And this phrase of to be built up in him occurs in other places in Paul's writing. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14. But verse 10 says this, According to the grace of God which is given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. Or Ephesians 2, verse 20, And believers, or saints in that passage, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We're still under construction, an unfinished product We've been rooted in him, and on top of that, we are being built up in him. So to walk in him, we must realize that we are still a work in process, which is not always easy to admit when we wish that uh, we were more complete than perhaps we are. But that process is absolutely necessary, and you must allow spiritual growth if you're going to continue walking in him. Don't get complacent. Don't be satisfied with walls that have no windows or no roof. Be built up in him. So if you've been rooted and are being built up, as the next phrase has here, you'll naturally, of course, be established in the faith. As we read the book of Colossians, we see that Paul is concerned uh, for the believers there that they might be deceived. If you look at the beginning of uh, chapter 2, verse 4, He says, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you or deceive you with nice-sounding words, with enticing words. He's concerned, as you look at verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you. And we'll look at that in just a moment. And then again, he's concerned that they'll lose out on experiencing all the rewards of their salvation. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, let no man beguile you of the reward. Instead, he implores them to be firmly grounded in the truth, to be established. If you look again at uh, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, If you continue, fa- uh, in, in the, continue in the faith firm and settled, 
And then chapter 2, verse 5, it's the, the steadfastness. He's complimenting them, encouraging them, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And then here in verse 7, to be established in the faith. Now, different translations use different words, but this word established, at least in English, gives a slightly better idea than perhaps strengthened, which you might see uh, before you, because it gives the idea of, of firmness and being solidly grounded. It's not going anywhere. Your faith is not. We know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, counterfeits are easy to discover because we're so familiar with the real thing. When you're, when you're firmly planted in God and his word and in the faith, it's much easier to, de- to detect things that aren't quite right, aren't quite true. Um, there was a time years ag- several years ago that there was a, a guest preacher in our church. And as he was preaching, uh, he, he said a few things that... Uh, we're new. <laughs> we'll say it that way. That, that, that the folks in our church hadn't heard before. And, and the, I think the most encouraging thing that our church body did at that time was that you started, the moment he said it, you heard pages start turning in their Bibles. It was like, no, wait, this can't be right. Because they knew what they had been taught. And they were firmly grounded in it so that when something came up that, that wasn't uh, quite right, they knew what they were looking at. They were established in the faith. Similar to being built up in him, being established in the faith is an ongoing process as well. It's not something that's just done and still has implications for me today. It's something that's still being done to me. Being established means that you're not easily influenced. It's too easy to have your faith spoiled or seduced If we look at verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. The idea of being spoiled is is being carried off as plunder, which often we don't see in our culture. We have seen in recent history, it happened in, in other areas of the world, but certainly as you go further back into history, this kind of thing happened much more frequently of you or your family or your things being carried off as plunder. And you can be taken captive, as Paul points out here, by deceptive philosophy. Keep in mind in their Greek and Roman uh, philosophy that the word philosophy could refer to all sorts of groups and points of view, including mystical practices. And compared with the rest of the book, Paul seems to be treating this word in such a way that he's referring to it as religion as religious practices that are hollow and that are vain. And he is referring to religiosity that is empty with no intellectual or moral or spiritual value to it. And people might look at things that they do or say or intelligence that they have or assertions that they make as having great value. It might even sound like it has great value. But when we compare it to God and to his word, it does not. Christ is always after our heart. He's always after our real faith, and religiosity has no place. If we contrast this, the idea of something being hollow and empty, move back to chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. As he's starting off, again, Paul is setting the stage to contrast with what the Colossians were facing. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before in the word of the truth 
of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth with substance. The gospel is the word of truth. Religiosity is deception. If you want to lose your way spiritually and end up mired and spiritually confused and keep thinking merely by doing what God requires, we are being who God expects. Religiosity soothes us to think that we're okay by our externals. And it's subtle and it's deceitful and it will spoil you. Your faith cannot be strengthened by hollow human philosophy and understanding life from our own perspective. We must see it more clearly from his perspective. Paul moves on. He says that you can be spoiled or taken captive by the traditions of men. He's not talking about like your Christmas traditions or things that you do as a family. That's not what he's referring to. He's not even referring to the methods of doing things that are proven in uh, you know, the test of time. This statement is more about the degree of difference, the mere traditions of men. The Colossians did not receive uh, the gospel by a tradition created by, by mere humans, but by the teaching of the Son of God. People speculate about life, about spiritual things, we guess. But according to Psalm 119, the unfolding of God's word gives light and is certain. So walking after the traditions of people will take you captive, and your faith cannot be strengthened by stopping short of Jesus Christ. And the last thing he has here, um, item that he mentioned, is that you can be taken captive by the rudiments or the principles of this world, the elemental powers of this world. In the ancient world, they, um, they tended to, it was common for every culture to assign deity to, to the basic elements as they saw them, which were uh, earth and water, air, fire, and they would assign deity to those things. And the Colossians were flirting with speculative doctrine about the spirit world and speculation borrowed from pagan tradition and not after Christ. And Paul is addressing this speculation about the spirit world throughout the book. Um, If you're taking notes, chapter 1, verse 13, verse 16, verse 20. But just by living in this world, it's easy to adopt and to pick up on the values and priorities of everybody else you live around, your neighbors, Uh, they have weedless yards, so you feel compelled to have a weedless yard. Uh, You you work with people uh, who have a certain set of values and things that they think are important, and it's easy to adopt those things uh, that are around you and not stay true to Christ. Um, It's easy to think that politics is the way that we change the world, is it not? It's easy to see everybody else spending their money like there's no tomorrow and wanting to kind of do the same thing. It's easy to adopt the values and priorities of everybody else, but we are Christ followers. And those who are established firmly in their walk with God are not easy prey to wrong ideas about life or God's word. How easily influenced are you? By friends, by coworkers, even strangers? Peter was influenced by a stranger, a little girl nonetheless. Have you made up your mind where you stand? Are your values and beliefs even biblical? God's working in our hearts is, is essential for our growth. Uh, the, the, we cannot do it on our own, this, this being rooted in him. We can't do that. Being built up in him, we can't do that. Being established in him, we can't do that on our own. That These first three uh, phrases in verse 7 are all passive, They're, meaning that God does them to us. He has rooted us in Christ uh, back at the moment that we believed. 
He is the one who is building us up in Christ by way of his word and by the Spirit. He is the one who is making us firm and stalwart in the faith. And by the way, as, as God is always working, because he always is, God is working. It is our job to cooperate with him. Um, I say this with our own children. You know, the mom and I have a goal for you. We're trying to get you to a place, you know, like being socially acceptable and other such things. We're, we're trying to get you to a place where you love God, where, where you are sensitive to the, to the Holy Spirit, where you are um, a considerate human being. We're, we're taking them someplace. But we're not, you're never going to arrive there if you don't cooperate. And God is taking us someplace. He is working in us, and we need to cooperate with what he is doing. But this last phrase in verse 7 is an active response by you and by me, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And the idea of this is pretty simple. It's being thankful. If the Colossians we're going to be walking faithfully in Christ, thankfulness would need to be their good and proper response. I say, well, why thankfulness? You know, why not, why not love or, or some other, you know, uh, attribute of way or way of being? Well, because for several reasons, thankfulness is an indication of spiritual health. Thankfulness is an indication of spiritual health. Um... If you think about what a healthy vegetable garden looks like, I'm sure that many of you have uh, vegetable gardens or flower gardens, but what do you expect to see in a healthy-looking garden? Uh, And we've been here almost four years, and we have had both healthy-looking gardens and unhealthy-looking gardens. You would expect in a healthy one to see the little buds, the flowers, the good kind of bugs, uh, bright green, lush leaves, uh, something that's growing, hopefully, you know, taller than you, it's, it's getting big and, and filling out, and eventually brings fruit that you can enjoy or can or whatever it is that you do with it. You don't hope to see those, did you have as many Japanese beetles as we did? Because our, yeah, some, some of the plants looked very, very sad. Uh, or last summer we had one of these, um, these hornworms in our tomatoes, and I'm fairly certain it's the same kind of caterpillar that ate Jonah's gourd, because in half a night, half a tomato plant could be gone. But you don't expect to see those things in a healthy garden. In a spiritually healthy person, you should expect to see thankfulness. A lush green garden uh, of your heart would, should have thankfulness as a characteristic of it. And Paul insists throughout this book of Colossians that thankfulness plays a prominent offensive role against a wavering faith and against false teaching. But also thankfulness acknowledges what God has already done. As he said, you've been rooted in him. And you can be thankful through that and about that. When I forget the significance of the cross, I will wander. Thankfulness also protects me from anxiety and from doubt. Where the Colossians may have been doubtful. Paul is saying to them, your good and right response is to be thankful. Make it a part of who you are. A part of your natural responses a habit of your life, a habit of your heart. I mean, have, have you ever really thanked God, thinking about how this is a deterrent to anxiety and to doubt? Have you ever thanked God for protection in the past while biting your nails? They normally don't happen at the same time, right? If I am being thankful for God's faithfulness to me in the past, that naturally translates to me and for faith in now and in the future. 
Not like, oh, I don't know if he's going to come through for me this time. I mean, he did it all back then, but this time it's really bad. No, thankfulness translates into the present and into the future a confidence in him. It protects me from anxiety and from doubt. But also thankfulness breeds contentment. Those who bubble over with gratitude for what God has already done have no need or desire to look for fulfillment elsewhere. As the Colossians began to look elsewhere to have that full spiritual life. And you cannot be taken in by false promises. And so Paul encourages the Colossians to be thankful because it's an active response to keeping us walking in Christ. Uh, a further thought with thankfulness. Um, my youngest is an infant. She's now, I was just talking with somebody, she's two months and a week uh, old. She doesn't do a whole lot right now. Uh, we do a whole, my wife and I do a whole lot for her, to her, you know, all those things that they am. That, 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 that infants require. There we go. I got the words out. Uh, we keep them dry. We keep them changed. We keep them fed. Uh, hopefully, we keep them slept. Uh, and all of these things that we are, are doing to and for this child. And again, she doesn't do a whole lot. We don't get a whole lot back out of her. We get an occasional smile now as a response. But it's one of those early smiles that they, they kind of like, you can't tell if it's a grimace or if they're smiling. And that's what she's doing now. But, boy, that's a thrill, though. It's, it's, it's a gesture, of, in a sense, of thankfulness. Or, or at least satisfaction of having gotten everything she wanted, for now. Give it 15 minutes. But, but when, we're, when we, for, for all that God is doing in us, and to us, and through us, and for us, our response should rightly be Thankfulness. And, and really, thankfulness is kind of like that weak smile my daughter gives. You know, after nights and nights of, of, you know, walking her back to sleep, of getting up, of stumbling over to the bassinet, of feeding her, patting her, and all of these other things that we are investing into her and our energies and our time, you get that little smile and it's like, ha, ah, this is great, best thing ever. The... The weak little smile, I suppose, that we can offer back to our Savior is at least our thankfulness for everything that God has given to us and invested in us and what he is doing, what he has done for us. He has, he has rooted us in Christ. He has built us up in Christ. He is he's establishing us in the faith if we're cooperating with him. And the least we can do is to offer to him our weak thanks of the heart attitude that is toward him and not suspicious of him. Sometimes it takes just long enough to notice God's hand in our situation to be thankful. And what is more, if you want to avoid being mired in spiritual quicksand, if you want to remain faithfully walking in him, you must purpose to have a thankful heart because it doesn't come naturally. Sometimes we just have to purpose to have a thankful heart. So when the car breaks down, thankfulness. You're just about to head to work. You are already running late anyway, and the tire's half flat. When the doctor says that there's no operation for your diagnosis, thankfulness. I mean, this involves small stuff and big stuff. When your child spills her drink in the car for the thousandth time and you just vacuumed it, thankfulness. When you feel like an outsider, thankfulness. When work keeps you late and interrupts your plans, thankfulness. When life generally isn't about what you want or it, it isn't what you had hoped for, thankfulness. 
And all of these scenarios are an invitation from God to us to continue walking in him, trusting him, staying faithful to him, and being thankful. We are challenged by the word of God tonight to know the truth and to believe the truth and resolve to stay firmly grounded in the truth. So how does one walk in him? Well, we remember who we are in Christ, who you are in Christ, and rest in it. And we continue with Christ regardless of setbacks because you're a work in progress, being built up in him. Which then, of course, results in us being solid, our faith becoming solid in him. And all of this is then marked by a genuine gratitude that's really hard to refute. So let Christ and and nobody else, because he is the Lord, and the Lord, uh, as we call him that, um, that nobody calls him Lord without being a believer. Let him establish your values. Let him guide your thinking. Let him direct your conduct as you keep walking in him. It's not, walking in him is not a a game. It's not a joke. Uh, Be determined to keep walking in him.